electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, the battle over in-app payments continues. I get a breakdown of Google's new concessions for Spotify and what that could mean for Apple and millions of small developers. Then globalization's counterargument as Larry Fink calls for an end to 30 years of globalization. We'll discuss why that may not be as straightforward as you think, at least when it comes to tech. And here to discuss it all, tech investor Dan Niles, who's got thoughts on the Fed, stagflation, and whether growth stocks could still be headed lower from here. Carl, we're going to kick off today's feed with a break in the battle over App Store payments. Spotify shares on the move after news that the company reached an agreement with Alphabet's Google to enable subscribers to sign up for the service directly through the Google Play Store. And with investors and regulators alike already watching this space, this could have a ripple effect through a lot of different tech companies. Julia Borston is joining us to break down that impact. Julia, uh, we're seeing moves in stock prices as early as this morning. Yes, and look, Spotify shares did spike about 3.5% after hours yesterday. They are down lower now, but this is important because up until now, Spotify made subscribers leave the app and go to its website to sign up to avoid having to pay Google as much as 30% of Spotify's monthly fee. But now, Spotify allowing subscribers to pay through Google's app store's billing system with Google accepting a lower fee is a significant step towards resolving the battle over app store fees. Now, Google says this is a pilot that it will expand broadly, and these are concessions in the face of regulatory scrutiny, which KeyBank says create a, quote, soft landing scenario for app stores where Google Play can continue generating significant revenue, consumer safety in stores is not compromised, and large developers and regulators are appeased. Now, a number of analysts this morning pointing out that this will make it easier for consumers to sign up to subscribe, which could help Spotify's premium subscriber growth. Bumble and Match Stocks rose on this news on the expectation that Google could carve out more favorable economic arrangements with certain apps. That's uh, Match is now up. Bumble is now lower. But they, their sign-up workaround on Android to avoid fees does expire next week. So those are two key stocks to watch here. And this Google-Spotify partnership could have wide-ranging app implications across the app ecosystem. Morgan Stanley speculating that Netflix, which forces new subscribers to sign up through a website rather than in-app, could strike a similar deal with Google, noting potential upside for Roblox and Zenga as revenue shifts to direct payments and for PayPal and Stripe to also potentially benefit from alternative payment methods. Meanwhile, KeyBank notes that Duolingo could benefit from direct billing as well. Now the question is whether this new partnership pressures Apple to follow suit. Its app store is much more important for the likes of Match and Bumble. It also has a track record of not making deals with individual developers, and it's seen as unlikely to cave unless they're really pushed to do so by legislators. Guys? Julia, here's my sort of 
eh, watch the fine print skepticism coming through. The way I, I understand it, it looks like in South Korea, where Google's done this uh, already, they've only reduced commissions by about 4%, right? So say that flows through and is similar for these other deals. That's not that much. And plus, if you want to extrapolate through to Apple, right? I mean, Google's like Dollar Tree to Apple's target as far as their ability to monetize on the platform and App Store. Won't they figure out other ways to monetize these developers, even if it's not directly through the payment system, through ads, through discovery, because they know that that iOS user base spends more and is more valuable, developers are going to end up paying up one way or the other, I have a feeling. Yes, yes, you're right. I'm sure Apple will find a way to make developers pay up. And I think it's really important to point out what you just did, John, about the fact that we don't know exactly what kind of fee Spotify is paying Google. But it's it's lower enough from that 30%. Maybe it's 24%, but it's just low enough to make them feel comfortable striking this deal. Maybe this is to uh, you know spit in the eye of, of, of Apple in light of their ongoing conflict. Um, and because Spotify and Apple have really faced off here. But the fact that they are agreeing to pay a fee, and by the way, even pay a fee if people are paying through their own payment system, does show that they feel like they've made enough progress that this deal is worth it. All right, so what does this news mean for Apple, the other big tech giant coming under scrutiny for in-app payment policies? Steve Kovac joins us with some answers. Steve? Hey, John. Yeah, I mean, to your point, look, I, I saw this news yesterday and I couldn't think of anything, but this is a, a shot across the bow at Apple. That's where all the money is. If you look at the App Store revenues for both Google and Apple from 2021, based on Apple disclosures, it could be up to $85 billion. And based on Google's uh, analysts, it's like 47 or something billion. So look, all the money is happening on iOS in that ecosystem, to your point. And by the way, this is just a way for uh, Spotify to say, look, we're really mad at Apple. Let's partner with Apple's enemy here in this space. And then a year from now, we can come out with all this data saying, look, Apple's argument here has been wrong the entire time. We can just mm -hmm. say, uh, you know, the security hasn't been compromised. People's credit cards aren't being stolen or anything like that. And that puts even more pressure on Apple, plus this looming legislation coming up in the EU, the Digital Markets Act, and then uh, the bill's going through yeah. Congress right now here in the U.S. I get that this puts pressure on Apple, but Steve, it's notable that neither company is disclosing what that new commission rate right. is. There's just so many questions that we still have. And then I was thinking about what is this actually going to look like in practice? So Google's product and engineering teams, they're actually going to be building a new experience. And you're ultimately going to see two buttons, pay through the Android store right. or pay through Spotify, for example. So you're still giving customers the option to choose, and I guess there's no guarantee that they're going to choose that Spotify option, because I know personally, like I like to have my subscriptions all in one place. This, when we talk about sort of creating less friction, yes, but not in, maybe not in the way that we think, maybe not in a huge way. Right, and, and this has been the theme for years since these in-app payments uh, have been a thing, Deirdre. It's like, what to the end consumer, what does it matter? I'm still paying 10 bucks a month for Spotify, and and so it doesn't matter who gets the cut. I'm still paying the same amount. So what incentives can a company mm -hmm. like Spotify or Match or Bumble and so forth offer me to click their button instead of the Google or Apple button? 
Steve, good stuff. Uh, quite a quite a day, and we'll see how much of this gets incorporated into uh, the outlooks as well. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Let's dig into some of these stocks. Uh, joining us this morning, Santori Funds' Dan Niles joins us to help kick off the hour. Dan, good to see you again. Good to see you too, Carl. Um, you'd said a few weeks ago that cash was a position, and I wonder how would you grade yourself in uh, leveraging this recent rally we've had? Um, it, it's gone pretty well. I mean, if you go back and you look at our Twitter posts, we talked about the fact we thought a short-term rally would be coming. We bought some stocks like in the fintech space to benefit from that. Markets rallied um, and we've started putting back on shorts. We actually now have, again, as many shorts as we have longs on. And so I think this is kind of the tape we're expecting. You get bear market rallies, you get sell-offs, you get bear market rallies, you get sell-offs. I think it's going to be you know one to two years before this is sorted through, because for the first time in a long time, the Fed is your enemy and not your friend. And I think people are forgetting that mantra, don't fight the Fed. Work great on the way up, it's unfortunately probably going to work well on the way down as well. How are you determining uh, what the high end of the channel uh, looks like? What is special about the levels we're at here that, that puts you to, to normalize your shorts and longs? Well, we've got about 17 different technical indicators we use. And, you know, the, the bottoms are actually a lot easier to pick with technical indicators. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at prior periods of bear markets, and we've analyzed about 10 of them where they've gone down about 30% or more, you typically get back about 70% of whatever you lost on the prior leg down. About 20% of those rallies, you get back all of the prior leg down. And so that gives you a starting point of you going, all right, you know what, this is when technically I should start putting those on if nothing about the fundamentals that I'm looking at have changed. And nothing on the fundamentals have gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. You've got higher oil prices, higher commodity prices. Guys are starting to cut numbers. You're getting towards the end of the quarter. You're going to see the impacts from Europe. Um, and so from that standpoint, we saw somebody cut their estimates on Amazon this morning by 15 percent because of oil um, for profits for the year. So you're going to see more of this stuff. And from our perspective, the Fed has just gotten started. So mm. it makes it a lot easier when you analyzed all the data going back in time. Hey, Dan, it's John. You mentioned Europe. It's uh, actually the subject of my on the other hand this morning. I hope you can spend some more time there because we just saw uh, Adobe take a dive yesterday post earnings. A big part of that was because of kind of pulling back on revenues out of Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, et cetera. And then I'm hearing more cautious commentary from the likes of Volkswagen Group, companies that are based in Europe versus just global, you know, multinationals who have some business in Europe, the ones who are closer to Europe seem to think that the economic impact in Europe is going to be bigger and flow through to more uh, other places. How much do you think the market is uh, considering that already? And how much should investors be thinking about it from here? This is a great question, John, because think about Adobe. They're a category leader. They make tons of money, very profitable. And the stock was already down 33% going into their earnings release yesterday. And by the way, they'd had two prior quarters that were poor as well. So it wasn't like expectations were that high. Then they reported, said, hey, by the way, now remember, Adobe's quarter ends in February. And Russia invaded the Ukraine on February 24th. Most of these companies are going to report the quarter, you know, their quarter ends in March. So you're going to have an extra month where things are slowing down. 
Adobe still got hit for 9% yesterday after being down 33% from its all-time high going in with two prior bad quarters. So for the rest of these companies, I think you've got a much bigger issue. You've got an extra month worth of data. Europe's a very important region for a lot of the bigger companies out there. And you know, I don't think investors are really paying attention to that or oil prices for that matter, because that matters and wages. Don't forget, you know, two-thirds, actually close to 80% of the US economy is now services-based. And we just saw the lowest jobless claim number in 50 years. And there's three million more job openings than there are people unemployed. That's going to keep wage pressure really high as well for a lot of these names. So, and multiples are still very high at, at a yeah. 23 times trailing PE. Right. So Adobe, perhaps as a cautionary tale, uh, Dan, it's Deirdre, by the way. Stagflation also, you say, is now your base case for 2023. Uh, some think that perhaps we could avoid a recession because things are maybe different this time. We're coming out of the COVID crisis. Some of those pressures are going to ease. But you're not thinking that way. No, I mean, I love the phrase, it's different this time, right? Because it never is. Um, I, I like the Mark Twain quote, which is, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And, and that's what you have right now, where you've got a lot of wage pressure, and you could get away with stimulating the economy, both central banks as well as governments, as long as there's no inflation. When you get inflation, if you think about the U.S., 35% of people do not own homes. 45% of people don't own stocks. Those people are getting absolutely killed by inflation. If you own stocks or homes, you're doing great because your stocks and homes are up a ton over the last two to three years. But the other portion of the population is getting clobbered. That's why the Fed has talked about moving expeditiously. I'm expecting a 50 basis point rate hike when they um, move in May. And I think they're going to stay aggressive because they let inflation get, get away from them. And now they're dealing with it. And that's why I think stagflation next year is sort of mm -hmm. the base case because you had oil prices double relative to the levels, uh, the average over the prior two years, which is in the low 50s. You've got CPI well over 5%, close to 8% now. And you've got a Fed that's getting aggressive while, while multiples are high. And by the way, estimates are going to be going lower when companies report and guide to John's point earlier on Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Dan, I keep coming back to comments that we heard from Jeff Gunlock last week, and he said because of all of these pressures, essentially, that the Nasdaq was no longer a place to be in the longer term. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to balance risk with reward. The last, I mean, think about it this way, right? You've had a global pandemic the last two years, and the S&P 500 has doubled over the last three years. So, you know, you take, it's paid to take as much risk as possible and buy anything you could, whether it's a boat, a used car, crypto, art, stocks, et cetera. Now you've switched to a, a realm where with rates going up, tech stocks are the most highly valued out there because a lot of those names you're buying on the promise of what profits you're going to produce 10 years from now and try to ignore the amount of money you're losing today. So I call this the Jerry Maguire market, dating myself a bit here, but you've gone from <laughs> sell me the dream of how wonderful things are going to be 10 years from now to show me the money. Can you grow profitably? Are you turning? Uh, are you growing as well as expanding your margins? That's what the market wants to see. And that makes NASDAQ a tough place to be for certain pockets of companies. We still have longs, but we've got as many shorts against those and those shorts are more in the unprofitable, expensive names. And the names we own are the really unsexy names, you know, going back to the 90s. 
but so, they make a lot of money, cheaply valued, some have dividends. That's what we want to be in. So then, Dan, given that you see things playing out that way, particularly what you were saying about the portion of the population that doesn't own stocks or homes, is this uh, bullish for companies like Walmart, right, that fare well in tough economic times? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really is because, you know, consumers are getting squeezed really hard if you're going to the pump you're going to the grocery store, et cetera. And so, you know, that's creating a lot of pressure on the consumer. And those people are gonna to start to trade down. And you can go back and look in the past when you've gone into a recessionary type environment, you know, the low end like Walmart, they do really well because then people are really focused on saving money. So, you know, from a relative standpoint, they should do a lot better. But, you know, don't forget back to your earlier point, you know, there's a lot of other pressures going on at the same time. Like, you know, how much has shipping costs changed for them? How much has total costs changed for them? Things like that, um, you know, you got to take into consideration. But on a relative basis, I would think Walmart should hang in a whole lot better. Dan, how are you processing uh, the theory that cash freight, for example, is negative year on year? Uh, used car prices are beginning to top out. The, num the wait time for container ships at a nine-month low. Basically, the idea that not only will you have base effects at work, uh, but maybe inflation does go soften in the second half. And the street always overestimates with how aggressive the Fed's going to be. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, you can think about it this way. We, we kind of talked about this earlier. About 80% of the economy is based on services. So that's based on wages you're paying people. And if you look at the average company in the S&P 500, about two thirds of their cost is tied up to that. Um, you've only got about 20% or so tied up with things like oil, with logistics, et cetera. So that wage price spiral is the thing that you really should be focusing on. And if you've got 50 year lows and jobless claims, the workforce is a lot bigger than it was 50 years ago. You're sitting at, you know, sub 4% unemployment, which is one of the, you know, bottom 10% of all readings. Yes, you're going to get help from all this other stuff. Will CPI come down from 7.9%? Well, obviously. But is it still going to be a lot higher than what's comfortable for the average person that maybe doesn't own stocks, doesn't own a home? Yeah, that's going to cause a big problem. And so that's why I go, yeah, well, those things are going to go down. We're actually short oil up at this level. But it's a longer discussion where you need to think about the trends that are going on, plus some of the macro stuff, which is we're building more stuff in the U.S., not in China. That's inflationary. There are less people being born, adding to the workforce. That's inflationary. And green policies are great for the environment, but coal and oil is still cheaper than, you know, solar and other things. And that's inflationary. Right. So all those long-term trends are also working against you now looking for. Yeah, certainly that's what uh, Howard Marks and Larry Fink and now Dan Niles have been arguing today. Uh, Dan, uh, great stuff. A nice blend of uh, the macro and the micro. We'll talk soon. Dan Thanks Niles. Thanks a lot, Carl. Appreciate it. And coming up, the street's top calls on software and hardware. And why names like Microsoft might be priced for disruption? Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Logitech headed higher this morning. Bank of America initiating the stock with a buy in a $170 price target. Shares are down, however, almost 30 percent over the last year. Bank of America thinks the accessory maker is well positioned for long term growth with exposure to megatrends like increased video conferencing, the creator economy and expansion into gaming of gaming into mainstream entertainment. John, those shares up more than 6 percent this morning. Indeed. And turning now to software. Our next guest says investors need to walk the line between growth trends, attractive valuations, and macro risks, calling names like Salesforce, Datadog, and Snowflake some of the best entry points in the sector. Joining us now, top-rated analyst Keith Weiss of Morgan Stanley. Uh, Keith, welcome. Let's start with the macro. Uh, We were just talking about this with Dan Niles. How concerned are you about what's going on in Europe, I mean, certainly from a human, humanitarian perspective, but when it comes to the broader economy, when it comes to impact on demand and stocks, are we, are we able to assess that yet? I think it's still a little bit early uh, to, to really understand the assessment, but you can screen for risk factors, right? And so um, it, if you think about enterprise software in particular, um, it takes a while for those demand impacts to get into the system, to see it in the pipelines and the close rates. But you can screen the space for what parts of software are going to be most protected and what, what are going to be most at risk uh, of macro disruption potentially. Stuff that's most protected is going to be your security spending. Um, that's not going to change. Uh, people still have to really shore up their defenses there. Your large digital transformations, we think those are going to have uh, solid funding behind them, particularly coming from large enterprises. On the riskier side of the equation would be stuff that has to focus on the consumer. Uh, marketing spend uh, is, is going to be more volatile or uh, stuff like collaboration software, which is, tends to be shorter cycle. So we focus on the parts of the equation that are going to be most durable, even if you do have some macro disruption and then match that with where you see the best valuations. And if you take that perspective, you can still find some really nice risk rewards in the market and, and in software in particular. So how much can valuations contract even in the areas and with the stocks that you like? I mean, if we do, do go through a bumpier time uh, macro-wise, um, is there more risk perhaps than investors are considering at the moment? When, when we look at the, the multiples, multiples have come in uh, a lot in software uh, really since November. If you look at broadly across the group, uh, we look at stuff like EV to sales multiples, uh, your enterprise value divided by your forward sales. Uh, if you look at it on an absolute basis, the group overall is uh, pulled back almost 40%. That's a pretty big correction. 
the levels that we've gone to, we think are pretty interesting. We look at those EBITDA sales multiples on a growth adjusted basis. So what are you paying for every percentage point of growth? And the levels that we've pulled back to, if you look at sort of when we bottomed on last Monday, those levels were spot in line with what we saw in uh, late March of 2020 and is in line or actually below uh, the five-year average and, and below even the five-year average before we saw this really nice period of software uh, multiples rising uh, uh, during, during COVID. So the valuations in our perspective have gotten to a point where they're pricing in disruption. Uh, investors think something is going to happen. It's just what level of disruption. I think what you're worried about more is are the forward estimates going to come down? Are, are people going to have to revise down their revenues? And that's what you like about software. Software tends to have very durable fundamentals. A lot of this is recurring revenues, meaning it's already on the balance sheet. It's just going to amortize onto the income statement. So software can prove more durable than a lot of the other spaces out there when it comes to the absolute fundamentals. So you have a good level of, of multiples. You have fundamentals that probably prove more durable than people fear. Mm -hmm. So, Keith, what do you make then of recent deal making in software, particularly Tomo Bravo's buyout of Anaplan? This wasn't the cheapest or the most battered cloud name. So what does it tell you about valuations and the rest of the space and appetite, not just from private equity, but perhaps the big tech players? Yeah, I think it's a really good validation point of what we're seeing in terms of attractive valuations. These financial buyers are seeing as good valuations as well. Like you said, Anaplan, it wasn't the, the least expensive or the most beaten up. Um, but if you look at the multiple that they were taken out at, um, that's well above where the average Smith cap software stocks play. So Anaplan got taken out about 11.5 times EBITDA sales. The average uh, small mid-cap stock in our coverage group is trading at about seven times. So that shows a lot of potential value in that small mid-cap space. And I do think there are more acquirers out there than we've seen historically. There's a lot of the, the larger vendors. Um, I, would, I would point to like a VMware or a Cisco or an IBM. We're still trying to buttress their, their software exposure. Obviously, we don't know about any particular deals, but these are vendors that we think will have an appetite for, for more software, as well as some of the cloud vendors. Um, they're, they're looking to go up the stack, if you will, get higher level functionality. And there's a lot of interesting assets in software right now. Um, and, and a lot of big players who are hungry, as you mentioned. Keith, thank you. Keith Wise from Morgan Stanley. Meanwhile, keep your eye on Apple today. We are on pace for eight days in the green from 150 to 171, uh, up double digits since the 15th. And there might even be more upside ahead. Average price target there, one cent shy of 190 as we're at session highs and close to 4,500. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deirdre Bosa. We're at session highs as chip names lead the NASDAQ higher. Top gainers this morning include NVIDIA, Intel, Marvell, and AMD. Plus, we've got the bull case for Roku, as one analyst calls it, quote, the most controversial name, unquote, in their coverage universe. That's later this hour. But first, let's get to a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, John. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Weekly jobless claims falling to just 187,000 last week. That is the lowest level since 1969. Continuing claims also fell to a 52-year low as labor shortages continue. Bond yields, meantime, bouncing higher following yesterday's big decline. The move bringing the 10-year not far from its highest level in nearly three years. Oil prices are falling as the U.S. and allies discuss new releases from strategic reserves. But Texas crude dropping as much as 2.5% before rebounding and then going back above $114 a barrel. And the U.S. Postal Service has placed an order for 50,000 new delivery trucks. Price tag is nearly $3 billion. It includes 10,000 electric vehicles, which is actually twice what was initially planned. Shares of Oshkosh, the recipient of the order, are up right now about 1%. I'll send it back to you, John. Rahel, thanks. The end of globalization. Is it here? BlackRock's Larry Fink today writing, quote, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades. And Oak Tree's Howard Marks has similar sentiments, telling investors in a note yesterday the recognition of these negative aspects of globalization has now caused the pendulum to swing back toward local sourcing. But making that swing might be harder than we think, particularly when it comes to semiconductors. Here's Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger's thoughts on the supply chain from a wide-ranging chat he and I had on Squawk Box yesterday. We're way too dependent on too few places in the world for something as critical as semiconductors for the future. And uh, the Asian uh, presence here is very significant, you know, as I've uh, talked about before. In uh, 1990, 80% of semiconductors were built in U.S. and Europe. Today, 80% in Asia. But that said, investment in capacity has continued here in the U.S. NVIDIA now says it's considering using Intel as a foundry though CEO Jensen Huang says it is complicated as, quote, it's not just about desire. We're not buying milk here. Carl, uh, <laughs> wow, what a difference 10, 15 years makes. There was a time when, when there, there was talk of Intel crushing uh, not only AMD, but also NVIDIA. Uh, those companies have done well, but now you know, we're talking about this kind of dislocation between the West and the East, and perhaps uh, a move on the on the part of a lot of uh, U.S. and European-based companies, even in the semiconductor industry, to work together. Yeah, to call it the end of globalization uh, is maybe sort of an overreach, I think, D. Uh, we just, for example, uh, lowered tariffs between the U.S. and the U.K. on steel. Uh, mm-hmm. That's We're going we're gonna to find our partners. I was struck by what Ian Bremmer said on Twitter a little while ago, that Russia's invasion is not the end of globalization. It's the end of globalization for Russia. Yeah. I was looking at that exact thing, uh, Carl, right as we were going into this, and it's a good point, but maybe not just Russia. Maybe instead of the end of globalization, we're seeing the splintering, which we talk about and have talked about for years in technology, but maybe on a bigger scale now, right? You have Russia and perhaps China on one side. Um, We talk about this when it comes to payment systems as well, increasingly. So I also would say that Pat Gelsinger's comments, while he did say that there was a need for U.S. leadership, he also said that it wasn't so simple, that they need to continue 
continue to have investments in places like China. He said that a quarter, about a quarter of all semis are consumed there and a quarter or more are manufactured or processed there. So you can't just turn that around. Perhaps more protections in place. But I'm with you, Carl and John, on that sense that maybe not the end of globalization, maybe more splintering. Well, and, and what replaces it, I think, is a question here. Uh, is it back to sort of Cold War era containment policy? And what happens yeah. to places like Australia, places in Southeast Asia, uh, places in Africa that have so much investment from China, for mm -hmm. example, that, that kind of this taking themselves out of that, if that's what the West pressures them to do, would be difficult. Well, to learn more about the global supply chain and the role of a European company, uh, ASML, which has become a giant player here in semiconductors, stocks up 400% in the last five years. CNBC's Katie Shula got a rare tour inside ASML's factory clean room. We have a ton of original reporting. That full video on CNBC.com and on YouTube. But here's a sneak peek. At the center of this big factory in the Netherlands, in the midst of a months-long assembly process, there's a revolutionary machine that the whole world has come to rely on. You could see an EUV machine right behind me. The size of a city bus, but working with atomic-level precision, these EUV lithography machines are the most expensive step in making every advanced microchip that powers the modern digital age. Data centers, cars, and every single iPhone. We are the only provider on the planet of this critical technology. These machines are the only way to print minuscule designs on these chips. They cost up to $200 million, and they're only made by a single company, Advanced Semiconductor Materials Lithography, or ASML. Turning to the streaming wars as more content providers warm up to the idea of ads, our next guest says Roku's market opportunity is underappreciated and their ARPU could reach two to three times current levels, which shares almost 75% off their highs of the year. And now trading below pre-pandemic levels is now the time to buy. Joining us now, Evercore's ISI's Shweta Kajuria. Shweta, it's great to have you with us. Lay out the case for us. I think you called this one of the most controversial names in the space, especially as we see the industry at large moved back towards an ad-supported model. Where does that leave Roku? Yeah, I, well, the reason, thanks for having me. The reason why I said it's one of the most controversial names is because there's just so much debate that's going on with this name. One On one side, we have supply chain issues uh, where Roku has seen an outsized uh, headwind versus the competition. We also have this macroeconomic inflationary pressure and wage inflation. And we also have, uh, you know, the international uh, expansion and investments that Roku is making that, that makes uh, investors a little bit more hesitant on what the next growth opportunity is for Roku. That said, we think that long term, it is hard to imagine that Roku will not emerge as one of the leading operating systems globally for TV. And our long pitch here is that, one, ARPU is very much underappreciated. If we look at the street's ARPU, uh, it is, it, they are, the street is estimating ARPU growth of around low double digits. So call it 11, 12, 13 percent three-year KGR up to 2025. If you actually look at linear TV ARPU, that ranges from $100 to even $150 if you look at Comcast's ARPU. And so we think that Roku's ARPU can actually even exceed linear TV ARPU, and they're not even close to that, $50 probably by the end of this year, and they could triple that if, they, um, if you think about the drivers that could lead ARPU growth. Now the pushback would be, well, what about active account growth? And that, that's mm -hmm. the controversy. 
Okay, well, Shreda, taking a look at the fundamentals, though, you mentioned those supply chain issues, and that has led to a loss in market share over the last few quarters. How do we know if there was real demand destruction there, and how do we know that customers didn't go to, say, an Amazon and are now locked into that ecosystem, which is much larger than Roku's? Well, first of all, we did our proprietary survey. We surveyed about 2,000 consumers which devices they use, which smart TVs they use. In the U.S., we think that, yes, Roku's share has ticked down from, call it, over 35% to now maybe 30% or somewhere in that range. But it is by far the leading operating system and the leading TV platform here for connected TVs in the United States and in Canada as well. So, yes, maybe there's some at the fringe uh, market share loss to uh, Android as well as Amazon, but they still remain pretty small percentage of the market. The second point is that satisfaction levels, according to our survey, are very high for Roku. They were actually the highest. What, what that tells us is that it's not only the account additions, but it's the net additions, which is the retention rates for Roku um, are likely to be a little bit higher than perhaps some of the competing platforms. And the final thing I'll say is that Roku, at the end of the day, is a TV-first operating system. They were built, they built their technology ground up for TVs. That's not the case with Android. That's not the case with Amazon. And when you think about OEMs, they're a little bit more hesitant, arguably, to partner with an Amazon because of the retail partnerships. Mm. Uh, and so really, it's either uh, Google's Android, which has a small market share here in the U.S., or Roku, which still continues to be the, the leader. Although, you know, Shweta, sometimes, you know, it's interesting to look at some of the strategic adjustments some of these players have made. Roku used to shun original content, then they got in with the Quibi library. Netflix used to say that password sharing was fun, maybe not so much anymore. Doesn't that suggest that maybe the low-hanging fruit has been picked? Some of the low-hanging fruit, yes, I think so. I mean, the one that I would point to is the streaming sticks. I mean, it started with being able to stream TV. We all had non-smart TVs, and now we can't find a non-smart TV in the market. And so all of us just made our TV smart with a sticks or a dongle, and that is pretty much very well penetrated in the U.S., maybe not so globally. So, so yes, that low-hanging fruit is picked, and so there's this shift uh, of going from sticks to the TVs. But the Roku, to, to back to your point on uh, the Roku channel and this, this shift across the different companies, I think that the Roku channel brings, it, Roku channel is not directly, the idea is not to compete directly with Netflix. I don't think Roku can afford to do that, and I don't think they're trying to do that. I think the idea there is that the Roku channel itself is, it monetizes better than anything else on the platform that they have control and inventory for. So Roku channel, they have full inventory control, they're trying to drive engagement, and they've done a great job. Uh, in five years, in about five years since when Roku Channel was launched, it's now a top five app. And you think about the top apps that there could be, um, including Amazon Prime, YouTube, et cetera. There are seven that I can think of, and Roku is in, you know, top five of them. So they've mm. certainly done a good job driving engagement, which really is driving their monetization engine uh, because they control that inventory. Shweta, for me, this is the core question, which is, is Roku the iPhone and iOS of streaming, right? Purpose-built exactly. operating system for streaming the way uh, iOS really was first for mobile. Um, the best gateway, kind of similar to the App Store for monetizing for all of these other services that want to do that. High loyalty, uh, discovery potential, all of that. Do you think it is? I think so. I think that it is, and that is exactly what Anthony is trying to do. First of all, we look uh, at founder-led companies 
favorably. And uh, on, in terms of execution, they've done a great job. It is not a self-inflicted issue for them. These macro headwinds are not something they created. They've been executing fairly well, so they should get credit for it. Juries, the, the big debate, if, if they want to be the operating system for TVs, the biggest debate is how will they do in international markets? They are, they are the mm -hmm. clear leaders here. How are they going to do in international markets? Arguably, Google has a better brand name. Samsung and LG have very good penetration. So how will they penetrate international markets and what will they need to do in order to gain market share there? And the reason why I think that um, Roku could do a good job is because they've done a great job in Mexico. They have about 20% market share there. They did a great job in Canada. About one in three TVs there are Roku. Um, and I think that they should get credit for that and that their execution has been good. Finally, I think why I think they could be the operating system is because it is a TV-first platform. No other operating system is. And so, yes, Android phones, Google makes their own phones, but Samsung still uses Android uh, operating system. Yeah. Same thing can happen with uh, TVs. Well, Shraddha, you laid out the case well there. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Well, the latest to jump into 15-minute delivery, not some startups, but grocery stores like Kroger and Aldi with the help of some new tools from Instacart. We've got an exclusive interview with CEO Fiji Simo up next. Stay with us. Let's get a gut check on EVs. A lot of news. Take a look at Nikola. Shares surging after announcing electric semi-truck productions up and running at their Arizona factory. Company expects to start delivering those trucks in the second quarter, and that means it'll beat Tesla's semi to the market as well. Meanwhile, Tesla itself jumping back above $1,000 a share this morning, back to a trillion-dollar market cap. Hertz now adding the Model Y as a rental option on top of the 100,000 Model 3s that it committed to buy last year. That's according to Electric. And in the Chinese EV space, NIO set to report after the bell tonight, expected to post a loss, but having an awfully big run over the last week, up about 15%. Tech Check is back after this. Instacart announcing a big push into quick commerce. It's unveiling plans to build out a network of micro or nano fulfillment warehouses to enable 15-minute delivery for its grocery partners. The instant delivery space, as we've been talking about a lot here on Tech Check, has really been heating up. Venture capital pouring funds into startups like GoPuff, Gorillas, Joker, and Gatier. At the same time, competition in grocery delivery, that's Instacart's core, has been intensifying with DoorDash's and Uber's push. I caught up with CEO Fiji Simo and asked her about the decision to get into this crowded field. Our approach to quick commerce is completely different from the approach that quick commerce players are taking. Uh, quick commerce players are disintermediating our grocers. They are owning their own inventory. We are not doing that. We are enabling our grocers. We are going to run these nano fulfillment centers on behalf of our grocers so that they can offer 15-minute delivery. So, so it is a different strategy, and this is essentially CMO's first big move since coming over from Meta. The idea here is to turn Instacart into more of a platform for its retail customers with things like expanded ad and analytic tools. And key here is to keep them loyal amid this increasing competition. I also asked her about inflation's impact on consumers. A recent survey from Morning Consult Report says that fewer Americans are ordering takeout for delivery. Have a listen. We're definitely tracking that closely and we are seeing uh, definitely price increases. As you know, on Instacart, the model is that our grocers set the price and we reflect them on our marketplace. And our grocers are definitely uh, 
be uh, you know selling higher prices. And um, what we're seeing is that people are kind of adjusting their their habits as a result of these uh, price increases. And we see our job as providing them with more opportunities to save, which is why we've rolled out a deal tab so that they see all of the discounts that are available to them on Instacart and many other options like bringing dollar stores onto the platform. Yeah, so she said that consumers are increasingly sensitive to prices. So some of the features she mentioned, like that deal tab, are part of a strategy to make the app more accessible. Finally, guys, I had to ask her about IPO plans, as I always do. She said that current market volatility is not affecting their timing, though it may be affecting their valuation in private markets. She said they don't need to raise money anytime soon, but that she wants to be able to show that expanded vision for the platform. So in that sense, John, this is... A step closer to that. When we will see that, uh, you know, reportedly been delayed a number of times. And so there are some concerns that perhaps Instacart has missed the window. Great. Yeah. Uh, talking to her again, Dee. But I, I got to wonder about the capital outlay that's going to be yeah. necessary to enable 15 minute delivery. And that delivery seems to be a local game, kind of not only MSA by MSA, but also suburb and, and urban area by urban area. We'll see how they do it. Meanwhile, there's a new Bitcoin bull on the street, and we'll tell you who after the break. Don't go away. One more thing before we go, and that's another Bitcoin bear biting the dust. Larry Fink telling shareholders in his annual letter that, quote, the war will prompt countries to reevaluate their currency dependencies. A bullish sign, he says, for global digital payment systems like crypto that are able to bring down the cost of cross-border payments. Pretty big step for Fink, who told Squawk Box last November that he wasn't, a quote, a student of Bitcoin and where it's going to go. Sounds like school may be back in session, D, as he says yeah. the acceleration uh, from the invasion of Ukraine is going to have multiple effects. Yeah, it was another what I've come to call a red pill moment. You see more of these business leaders at least show a curiosity. And what a change that is from a few years ago when you saw more of them willing to sort of write off crypto as a whole. You don't see that as much these days. Instead, you see more come over to the side. One more, more thing, guys, and that is uh, restlessness at Google. CNBC's Jennifer Elias reporting that executives were bombarded with questions from employees over their pay at a recent all-hands meeting. An internal survey revealed that a growing number of Googlers don't view their compensation package as competitive. Keep in mind, Alphabet is coming off a record year, vastly outperforming their peers in 2021, up more than 65%. You can read CEO Sundar Pichai's response and more on this exclusive story on CNBC.com, Carl. Uh, Meanwhile, guys, we are back to 4,500, which we crossed earlier in the week for the first time in about a month. And oil below 112 is interesting, too. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.